0: This evening we'll consider Lord's Day six questions and answers 16 to 19, and then we will read from Galatians chapter 3, 6 to 29. So let us read responsively from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's found on page 874. I'll ask the question and then we'll read aloud together the answers, starting with question 16. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin, but a sinner could never pay for another. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. And now the scripture reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 29. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, "Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in, the case. in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, that is, his children. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law... That is the Mosaic law, the law from Moses introduced 430 years later, does not set, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the promise, sorry, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's there nor there is male or female for all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it as we consider the Holy Gospel this evening and how it's been unfolded in the scriptures. So the main question we're going to be looking at tonight, uh, the one we'll be asking and seeking to answer is, how do we come to know about this one mediator between God and man? That is the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who is both true God and true man. How do we come to know the gospel? Now, the primary author of the Heidelberg Catechism that we read earlier, those questions and answers, was a man by the name of Zacharias Ursinus, a professor of theology in Heidelberg, Germany, and he writes this. He says, the law was engraven upon the heart of man in his creation and is therefore known to all naturally, although other revelations were given. That is, the law. God gave the law through the scriptures The Gentiles have the law written in their hearts, Paul says in Romans. The gospel, however, is not known naturally, but is divinely revealed to the church alone through Christ the mediator. For no creature could have seen or hoped for that mitigation of the law concerning satisfaction for our sins through another if the Son had not revealed it. Just as Jesus told Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. That's Matthew 16, verse uh, verse 17. And so what Zacharias of Sinus is saying there is that each of us, each person, no matter where that person is on planet Earth, knows the law of God naturally. That is, we're all born with a moral conscience that speaks to us about the standard of perfection, That God requires of us. Moreover, we can look out at the open book of creation, the general revelation, and see that God exists, that there is an intelligent, wise designer behind this beautiful world that has complexity and order to it, and that we are held accountable to him on the last day after death. We know that by nature. It's not something that needs to be revealed to us by an extra book, we can know it alone from nature, apart from God's word, that each stands before God as guilty and liable to his judgment. So we know the law by nature. Now, by comparison, we can only come to know the gospel through special revelation, that is through the word of God, it is, as it has been revealed to us through prophets and then written down and recorded and preserved for us in the scriptures, in the Bible. It is not something that can be discovered naturally. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so what that means is that we need the gospel to hear and know the gospel. It needs to come to us from outside of us. We can't can't learn it naturally. We can't simply study creation or look inside of us to find the gospel. It comes outside of us. It is that prophetic word from God that speaks to us about the personal word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. So the next question then, is when was the gospel revealed? Is the gospel something that has come only in the New Testament era with the coming of Christ? Is it something that only we have received? Well, no. God began to reveal the gospel from the earliest point of human history. There back in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, when they were still in paradise after the fall, but before they were exiled. We read in Genesis 3.15, We read how God spoke to the evil one, the serpent, in the hearing of Adam and Eve, so they were there listening, and God said, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he, that is the seed of the woman, will come and crush your head, and he will be struck in his heel by you. You will strike his heel. And so, This verse, Genesis 3.15, is often considered or called the proto-evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. God was there in the very beginning, promising that he would not let evil win. He would not let the darkness win and take over his creation. He would not let evil have the last word. He promised it through the offspring of the woman, that is a true human, a true descendant of humanity, that through the offspring of the woman, God would secure the victory over evil with good. He would crush the head of evil, but it would come at a price. We also learn that from that that one verse. His heel would be struck by the evil one. You can almost picture it, the, the heel of a man coming down and crushing the head of the serpent, but at the same time, the serpent lashing out and grabbing on with his fangs to the heel, which means the suffering that would also be inflicted and would befall this champion of humanity. So this was the gospel that was promised. The promised champion of humanity would come, he would suffer, but he would be victorious in the end. And this is good news because God was promising that he would make this happen. He would bring about the victory for humanity. God would do it. And it was simply something for us, in a sense, to to step back and watch and then believe and trust in him. So that was, in the very beginning there, the tiny seed of the gospel. Picture that, just this tiny seed that was given to Adam and Eve. And we can assume that Adam and Eve held on to that gospel promise by faith. They were waiting for that champion of the the offspring of Eve to come who would beat the serpent and bring humanity back into God's presence, back into paradise. And so from that point onward, with that seed revealed, that gospel seed throughout the scriptures, uh, progressively through time, through redemptive history, that seed began to sprout and take roots and began to grow bigger and bigger with greater clarity, revealing more and more God was to his people. So we see that God was progressively unfolding, unpacking, revealing the gospel to his people. He revealed it more and more how he would bring about this victory through his champion. And we consider how he proclaimed it to the patriarchs, like the Heidelberg Catechism says. That is, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. For example, in Genesis 12, 2-3, which is a passage that Paul quotes in Galatians, he says, To Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so God was promising to bring about the saving blessing through the offspring of Abraham, through his seed, God would bring about that champion and would bless not only Abraham and his offspring, but all of the nations, all of the Gentile nations, including us in the end. And so he also proclaimed it to the patriarchs. And then he later proclaimed it from and through the prophets like Moses and the rest of the prophets. And one example is found in Deuteronomy 18 from Moses, where he says this, I will raise up, for them, a prophet like you, speaking about Moses, from among their fellow Israelites. And so we learn that he's not only a seed of Eve, the woman, not only a seed, an offspring of Abraham, but also an Israelite. And I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. And so those are just a couple examples of how God was declaring these promises about how he would eventually bring about that victory for humanity, securing his glory, redeeming his people through this offspring of Eve. And yet one who is more than just an offspring of humanity, one who is also true God. So he was declaring these promises, but more than that, he was not only saying what he would do, he also gave throughout the Old Testament the believers, these pictures, pictures of what God would do. He was foreshadowing the gospel through a variety of different ways, through the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the law. And so when we look at the Old Testament and we study the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis all the way until the beginning of the New Testament, properly interpreted and properly understood, every part of the Old Testament is in some way pointing forward to the coming of Christ, giving the Old Testament believers and also now us as we look back a clear understanding of what God would do through Christ. So God gave them patterns and pictures in the Old Testament, these patterns and pictures that he set before them that were added on to the promises that prefigured the person of Christ. Everything was pointing forward to the person of Christ. But now we have to realize that what we have is so much better because we know him who finally fulfilled the gospel. God's own beloved son, Jesus Christ. We don't have a, a mere shadow to look at. Think of that if you, if you had to picture someone, if you had to see who he is, but all you could see is their shadow. It tells you something about that person. You can kind of see the confines of their, their person, but you can't see their face. You can't see their likeness. You can't see who they really are. And in this way, we have something so much better now that we have the substance of God's promises in the person of Christ as he's revealed to us in God's word. Now, all this is vital for understanding how to read properly and interpret properly God's word, the Bible. We find that the, there's a unity throughout all of God's word, that the unity of the Bible's central message, in fact, assumes the unity of God himself. We believe that there is only one God. There's only one covenant of grace that he has set up, one people of God, one mediator between God and man, one spirit and one way of salvation. And so God's word is all connected together. It's all telling this one beautiful story of redemption with Christ as the main hero, the main character there, all pointing to him, all held together by him. Now, why? Because, as we said, God is one. He cannot be divided. The Old Testament way of salvation, therefore, is not different than the new. It is the same gospel, just in seed form, which has grown up and now is in full form in the New Testament with Christ. The famous, perhaps the best theologian of all history in church history, St. Augustine, famously said this, the new... The New Testament is the old concealed, and the old is the new revealed. And so in that, we find that the New Testament reveals to us what was concealed in the Old Testament. And as we look back in the Old Testament, we understand more deeply the New Testament as well. They flow together. They're intricately tied together. The two testaments of the Bible are so closely interrelated with each other, the Old Testament was pointing forward in time, preparing God's people for the work of Christ in the New Testament. Now, that might leave us with a question. What is the difference, then, in our relationship with God, in our walk of faith? What's the difference between us now and the believers in the Old Testament? And Zacharias or Sinus has eight different comparisons that he draws out uh, that I've tried to summarize for us briefly here that I want us to consider. And we see the the unity, but we also see some uh, differences as well. There's continuity and some discontinuity. So first of all, God has given us the same mediator, Jesus Christ. There are not multiple mediators. Christ is the same mediator for us as he was for the Old Testament believers, even though they did not know him fully as we know him now. Secondly, God has promised the same saving grace to all that believe in this mediator. You know, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says that the the Israelites in the the wilderness, they drank from the rock, which was Christ. And so we, we see that they received Christ, the substance, even though they had it in promise form, they still received the same grace that we receive today. Also... Three, God requires the same condition of us in this covenant. He requires that we believe. He requires faith, just as he did in the Old Testament. To receive that grace, we receive it by faith alone. Fourthly, God received into favor Old Testament believers by their faith in the Messiah to come. And so this is some discontinuity, but you see the continuity here. They believed in the Messiah who was to come, and the sacrifice that he would offer— Whereas God, he receives us into that same favor for the sake of the Messiah who has already come and the sacrifice that he has already offered in our behalf. And so they were looking forward in faith and we we're looking back in faith. But the same Messiah is the same object of our faith. Now in the Old Testament, and this is fifthly, in the Old Testament, God added many rites and signs that were pointing forward to the arrival of the Messiah, those patterns and pictures that were prefiguring the person of Christ, right? And these were the sacraments, uh, as Ursinus says, that were various and painful, things like circumcision and Passover and all the animal sacrifices and the blood that that entailed. Whereas in the New Testament, in the era in which we find ourselves, there are only two sacraments, two signs that God has given us to point back with clarity to the person of Christ and what he's done for us. What are those? Well, baptism and the Lord's Supper, these pictures that help us see with our eyes and taste with our tongue even and feel over, over us with the water, uh, the reality of God's promises and what God has done for us. And so it's more simple and they're more significant, more weighty in that sense. Now, the sixth comparison that Osinus draws out is this. In the Old Testament, God gave believers types and shadows of good things to come and all of this was typical, like the priests, the sacrifices, and kings. And so it was all veiled in obscurity. They couldn't see it clearly. They saw that shadowy outline of the Messiah, just a shadow form. But they couldn't behold his face. Whereas in the New, New Testament, where we find ourselves, the fulfillment of those types has come in the grace and truth that Christ our Lord has brought to us. And then seven Old Testament believers received the Holy Spirit as well. They were regenerated as well and given faith, but in smaller and more limited measures. Whereas in the New Testament, we see that there's a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that we receive kind of large draws, full draws of the Holy Spirit with a greater distribution of spiritual gifts as well for the building up of his church. And then we find as well that in the Old Testament, God set up a system that was to continue only until the coming of the Messiah. And so those types and forms, those patterns, they were temporary. They were meant only up until a point until they were rendered obsolete, no longer useful because Christ, the substance, had arrived. He who set up that everlasting covenant, the new covenant with us. And then we find that the Old Testament believers were also bound to uphold the whole ceremonial and judicial law of Moses. And this is what Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 3, which we read, where he says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up under the faith that was to come, that would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. So here, by referring to the law as a guardian, and that could also be translated as a nanny, uh, a guardian, a tutor, sort of. And the purpose was God gave that law to Israel to drive them to their need of Christ, their need of a mediator, need of a savior. That's why Paul asked the question, why then was the law given at all? To which he answers, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And so the yoke of the law of God, all of that ceremonial law of God, which was numerous, there's so many different laws that the Israelites, the believers in the Old Testament, had to take upon themselves and live underneath those. That was all meant to drive them to a humble recognition that was what Paul says, the law itself cannot impart life. We are too weak. We cannot enter into or secure the life that God made us for by our own obedience, according to the law, it is impossible. That righteousness that God demands of us cannot come by works of the law. So now that Christ has come, the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law are no longer binding on believers. And Paul in numerous places says that's good news, that that heavy weight of the law is no longer upon us. And God only binds us now to the moral law, like the 10 commandments. And which is considered now, according to James, this law of liberty, uh, this law that we freely and willingly and lovingly want to follow and obey. And the last comparison that we find between us and the Old Testament believers is that God in the Old Testament confined his church, that covenant community, to one ethnicity group, to one geopolitical nation, the Jewish people. So salvation was found among the Jews and ultimately from them through the Messiah who had come from the Jews. And so in order to be saved in the Old Testament, you had to enter into that covenant community. You had to become a Jew through circumcision and again submitting to the entirety of the law. But now in the New Testament, in the church, it is established among all nations, all Gentiles, and is open to all who believe. From every nation, every rank, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, every, every condition and every language, our Sinus says. And so we have these, these great benefits now. As we considered last week uh, from the author of Hebrews, what we have now in Christ in the New Testament era is so much better. Uh, what Christ has brought us. And much of this is what Paul uh, spoke of in Galatians chapter 3. And by way of conclusion, we find that by faith in Jesus, we too have become children of Abraham, spiritual children of Abraham. And what does that imply? It implies this organic unity that we have with believers in the Old Testament. We are of the same people in the sense of the same people of God, according to the same covenant of grace that was promised to Abraham and his children We are now part of that one people of God who belong to the one true God by faith in the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And everyone who has ever been saved or ever will be saved is saved by faith alone in that true gospel. The promised and fulfilled victory of our champion, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so hopefully at the conclusion here, we see that organic unity in the Old Testament And in the New Testament, in that progressive revelation, like that seed that started so small, that promise, and took root and began to grow, become clearer and clearer until Christ came and we realize how beneficial or how wonderfully uh, we stand now looking back on all that God has promised and seeing it fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. We'll end there. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time to consider your progressive unfolding of the good news, the gospel. It's not something that we ourselves can naturally find within us by looking inward or find in creation. It's not something that we can study in nature. It is something that needed to come from outside of us, from your realm of glory, and you have given it to us. There in the very beginning, To Adam and Eve, you declared that glorious promise, the promise of good news that you would send a champion who would be victorious for us. And Lord, we thank you that as you revealed that promise, that you were true to your word and that it has come to fruition, that Christ has come to earth uh, 2,000 years ago and that he lived and died and rose again. And so we now look back, now not only seeing shadowy forms of your promises, but we see the substance, the reality in the person and work of Christ. Lord, we ask that this would strengthen our hearts and help us better understand uh, all of the scriptures and interpret them rightly, seeing Christ in every page and seeing how everything is pointing forward to him. Lord, help us put Christ in, in the center of our own hearts and our own faith, ever trusting in him, all our days. Lord, impress this faith upon us or in us and our hope that we derive from Christ and in him alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.